Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm Jim, that's Callum, and we're going to <laughs> tell you everything Sorry. you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm not Callum, I'm James. How are you doing? I'm apocalyptically fine. Good. What are we doing today? Well, today we're talking about infective endocarditis. Good. All right. I know you've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah. Is this your favourite? Uh, well, I don't know. You're not meant to pick favourites. I suppose. Well, that's what they say, isn't it? My yeah. favourite is a patient with no illness. Mm. I don't like this because I think it's quite easy to sort of get it wrong or overkill or... Um, you know, the antibiotic prescriptions are really complex. So complex, in fact, that we're not going to talk about them this week. This is part one of a two-parter. Well, let's start by, by defining endocarditis itself. So I found this um, on uh, in, a, in a paper talking about non-infective uh, endocarditis. So we'll, we'll uh, define that as well. But endocarditis is defined as inflammation of the endocardium, the lining of the cardiac chambers and valves, and characterized by vegetations most commonly caused by infection with bacteria or fungi. Uh, so as a quick anatomy revision for the loyal listener, your uh, heart is comprised of three major tissues, pericardium, which is the outermost and is, uh, tissue layer and is composed of a, a sac uh, within which the heart sits and, and beats. Uh, myocardium, which is the actual muscle itself, which is um, penetrated by various arteries. And endocardium and endocardium is the uh, lining of the chambers of the heart and the valves themselves and the cytoskeleton of the heart which uh, within which the valves all reside are uh, bits of endocardium but they actually reside uh, within the myocardium itself that has the potential to get inflamed and if it's inflamed it would be called endocarditis but uh, to all intents and purposes most uh, endocarditis cases are infective for record, there's such a thing as non-effective or aseptic endocarditis, and these are usually caused by kind of prothrombotic conditions. So uh, SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus, uh, or the antiphospholipid syndrome, certain prothrombotic autoimmune conditions like Bichet's disease and adult onset stills disease. Granulomatous polyangitis. What Wigner's is now called can very rarely cause it, uh, and uh, malignancy, particularly uh, endocrine uh, adenocarcinomas of the lung and pancreas, uh, can cause it too. These are not going to be causing more than maybe five percent, if that, of the endocarditis that we see. Most cases are infective in nature. So, Calm, what are the kind of organisms that cause endocarditis? So thanks, Jane. Talked about the definition and uh, the rest of the podcast. We're going to talk about causative organisms and then talk about symptoms and sign, mix that in with risk factors, and then finally we'll talk about diagnostics. Um, we're going to leave aside discussing treatment and, and surgery because it's such a large topic. So causative organisms. Now, uh, part of the reason why we have chosen to do infective endocarditis, and on that note, skin soft tissue infections, lower respiratory tract infections is that these are the clinical syndromes that are related to the organism groups that we spoke about at the beginning of this 
series, if you want to call it that. So we've already talked about uh, the organisms which most commonly cause infective endocarditis, and that is Staphylococcus aureus. Possibly, the, probably the most common, it's the most common individual organism that would cause uh, infective endocarditis. There's a bit, some debate in literature about whether Staph aureus is more common or Streptococci. Yeah, but Streptococci is a genus where Staph aureus is, the, is one species, exactly. is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, within Streptococci, there are different species of Streptococci that are more or less likely to cause infective endocarditis. And we talked about this a little bit in the Streptococcal episode. The most high risk, so if you say you've got a bacteremia with a strep organism, the highest risk are strep mutans, gordoni, which are some of the uh, mitis group strep. But interestingly, if you think about the numbers of strep bacteremias that you see, things like Streptococcus discolati, it's actually very low risk. So only about 5 to 10% of people that have a strep discolati bacteremia will have infective endocarditis. But because there's so much streptococcus discolati bacteremia, mm, you actually yeah. end up with quite a lot of infective endocarditis. The same goes for strep pneumo, which is uh, very low risk of infective endocarditis, but it does cause uh, infective endocarditis, and then there's some in the middle. Um, so most streptococcal species can cause infective endocarditis. One of the difficult things to interpret is that you can often see these streptococci, especially the Verudans group strep, they can you know, simply be a contaminant in a blood culture. So uh, one of the yeah, and the and the mitis group. Just to remind everyone, it's it's a viridan strep, it's an alpha hemolytic strep that's not strep pneumoniae. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, listen to the streptococcal episode because um, <laughs> I'm not explaining any of this now. Uh, you yeah. you should go back and listen to that episode if you've not listened to it already, because hopefully that will clear it up. Yeah, because I'm just going to launch into the um, discussion. So yeah, staph aureus and strep, that is the vast majority of infective endocarditis. Yeah. Uh, do you want to mention the bovis group uh, as well, just briefly? Oh, that, that's, that's a good thing. MRCP thing that everybody knows. So yeah, the strep bovis group, which includes um, Streptococcus gallaticus, amongst others. So that's it somewhere in the middle. It's about 30% of patients with a strep gallaticus bacteremia will have infective endocarditis. Um, and the important thing to note with this is that it's strongly associated with colorectal cancer. You might be in the unfortunate position of not only newly getting diagnosed with a bacteremia and an infective endocarditis, but also you need to make sure that you're looking for that colorectal cancer. Mm, yeah. And that, that's sometimes seen with other kind of groups as well. So, um, uh, you know, enterococci have, a, a, I think, a slight association, although it's not as kind of pronounced as the bovis group. Uh, and they don't need to have 100% of colon cancer, by the way. People bacterially translocate their streptococci for lots of reasons. It could be secondary to colitis. It can be secondary to inflammatory bowel disease. But it's, you know, certainly if you encounter that in the MRCP, there's only one answer, and that's give them a colonoscopy as soon as possible. Isn't that right, Cal? Uh, yeah, maybe their the MRCP is <laughs> changing, but who knows? Been a while now. Um, so, yeah, Staph aureus, streptococci. Uh, next, we've got enterococci. Oh, we've talked about mm. that as well. Uh, yep. And then um, finally, uh, coagulase negative staphylococci. Oh, we've talked about mm. that as well. The coagulase negative staphylococci, you know, they're, they're uh, a minority of um, infective endocarditis, but they're particularly relevant in uh, prosthetic valve infective endocarditis. Uh, and within that, more the sort of late presentation rather than the early presentation, which is usually staph aureus. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, staph aureus, streptococci, enterococci, coagulase negative staph. And then more small print stuff. So there's a huge range of organisms that can cause infective endocarditis. And we're not going to give a comprehensive list, just the, the headliners. But the other sort of common thing that comes up is the HACIC group. 
Um, I probably put a bit too much phlegm into that one. Yeah, so the Hasek group uh, are a, a group of very disparate, uh, predominantly gram-negative, if I remember right, uh, organisms. And the the name itself is, a, is an acronym. Uh, so H is for Haemophilus, A is for Aggregatobacter, C is for Cardiobacterium, E is for Iconella, and K is for Kingella. Uh, and these are, again, not related particularly to one another but uh, they uh, all share a common characteristic is that very often they are culture negative. They cause culture negative endocarditis. Culturing them uh, from blood requires prolonged uh, incubation uh, and sometimes the use of specialized agars uh, as well. Uh, so Haemophilus, for example, it needs um, uh, a special agar in order to be able to grow, to be grown in the lab. Uh, and there's a couple of others in the group like that too. We, we said at the beginning, usually it's a bacterial or fungal cause. There is fungal endocarditis, you know, more commonly associated with prosthetic valves, uh, actually particularly molds, or uh, in the case of candida, very typically it's um, because of a candidal colonization of uh, other prosthetic material elsewhere, or the patient is immunocompromised and has a reason to become candidemic. We'll talk about that later. I think that sort of deserves a little section of its own, probably in the treatment uh, okay. episode. So it's our causative organisms. And if you want more details about those, go back to our previous episodes, which covered the four of the, the big groups. And mm. uh, So let's talk about symptoms, signs, and risk factors all bundled into one. So uh, this, this sort of list that we're about to go through it sort of comes from the... Um, British Society of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy uh, guidelines, which were last published in 2012. There are other more recent guidelines produced by the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology. Um, so in different parts of the world, people will be referring to them. In the UK, um, we mostly... Or, certainly in our, our local practice in Lothian has been to predominantly use the BSAC guidance uh, with occasional deviation uh, to the other two uh, guidelines based on a recommendation from microbiologists with special interest in cardiology or in the advice of our infectious disease consultants. Um, but BSAC, I would say, is kind of the bedrock of what we use. And certainly the major differences in uh, treatment um, so let's talk about who BSAC say we should consider uh, the diagnosis of, of endocarditis, and then we'll talk a bit more about how to actually diagnose it. Um, so if you've got a febrile illness with a new murmur, or you've got an at-risk cardiac lesion uh, and no other site of, uh, site of infection that's obvious, then you should consider. Now, what does an at-risk cardiac lesion means? Well, it means any valvular heart disease or you've had a valve replacement. You've had endocarditis previously. So if you've had it before, you're more likely to have it again. Uh, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. So patients with that uh, are more at risk of getting endocarditis. And structural congenital heart disease. So if you're born with a congenital heart defect of any kind, except an isolated atrial septal defect, or you've had a repaired VSD or patent ductus uh, arteriosus, or you've got a closure device in to repair the VSD or the PDA, 
uh, or the atrial septal defect, but it's been in long enough that it would have been considered to be epithelialized. Epithelialized meaning the uh, metal or plastic or whatever it's made out of has been covered in um, cellular material. Yeah, it's an interesting to think about why these give you this risk or increased risk of infective endocarditis. Essentially, your your heart is very well designed to have laminar flow, so it's got a smooth flow through the system. And when you get some sort of defect, what you get is turbulence. And with the turbulence, mm. uh, you get sort of microtrauma, eventually you get sort of microclots forming on, on the valves or the endocardium, and that can lead to this sort of establishment of bacteria. So then uh, the, the other at-risk groups, um, febrile illness again with new onset of congestive heart failure, a new conduction disturbance, stroke, so emboli going off and, and causing embolic phenomena, peripheral abscesses, so you scan the patient and you find abscesses in the kidneys, the spleen, you know, maybe the brain in the, in the vertebra, and you don't know where they came from. Any at-risk lesion with a recent bacteremia, and then vascular phenomena. So vascular phenomena—that's the stuff that you learned in medical schools: your Roth spots, splinter hemorrhages, Osler's nodes, and Janeway lesions. Um, so the uh, yeah, so so Roth spots to remind everybody there, a kind of a focal retinal hemorrhage um, produced by septic emboli that you can see in the back of the retina. But yeah, splinter hemorrhages—they're—they are um, kind of a longitudinal kind of reddy brown. Kind of hemorrhage under the nail looks a bit like a wood splinter. Up to a third of patients have this, um, between a sixth and a third. Yeah, they've got a wide differential as well, um, even if they're pathological. But worth looking for, and with with all these things that James is about to talk to, um, you're looking on the hands and the nail bed. But the key thing I would say is look at the feet because you. You often find people that people I've seen with mm. infective endocarditis and they've had peripheral signs. It's been on the feet and not on the hands. Um, incidentally, everything that we're about to talk about, um, uh, if you want to know what they look like, uh, just uh, go on Dermnet NZ and uh, they've got a great web page on Osler nodes and Jamie lesions and splinter hemorrhages mm. for that uh, matter. So anyway, uh, Osler's nodes um, are uh, kind of ready purple, slightly raised tender uh, and sometimes have a pale center so this differentiates them from jamie lesions which are not tender uh, the pain can actually precede the onset of the node by about a day um, they're normally found in the fingers and the toes as Callum has said and they can occur at any time but they're usually kind of subacute um, as in they're they're not right at the onset uh, and they can of of endocarditis and they can last hours to a few days. JME lesions, by contrast, they're non-tender. Sometimes they're hemorrhagic and they're mostly on the palms and the soles again. Uh, and they last sort of days to weeks and then they heal up and they, they go away totally. Interestingly, the pathology of these is very similar. There's neutrophilic infiltration in both if you check the path, but JME lesions, it is assumed to be secondary to microemboli because you can culture staph aureus from them. Whereas Osler's nodes, you can't. They're considered immunologic mm. phenomena. Um, and then the last few risk groups that BSAC have said to suspect it in, any new unexplained embolus, persistent bacteremia, uh, in particular if you've got an infected IV line and you 
remove it and you still have battery use 72 hours afterwards, um, detectable in blood cultures, then uh, you should consider it. And then any case where you've got prolonged malaise, sweats, weight loss, or anorexia, then to consider it too. So you can see that the, you know, when we're talking about the who to consider it in, fever plays a big part of it, but there's these others kind of B symptom style clinical features that you should kind of consider endocarditis. And is there any other risk factors we should add to that list from the guideline? Well, I mean, I guess, um, you know, the, the risk factors are becoming persistently bad remix. So if you're aiming to compromise for, you know, whatever reason, um, do you have anything else in mind? I was thinking intravenous drug use or injecting drug users, especially those who, um, you know, injecting for a while, lose access, um, you know, there's less veins in your arms and people commonly try to inject into the femoral vein and end up with sort of inflammation trauma there and lead to DVTs. So if you've got, uh, then you get an infected DVT and that travels up and you get right heart, right-sided infective endocarditis, the right, the right heart. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a, a quite a classic um, case would be someone who's presents with a DVT and they've got a history of injecting drugs and then they've got, you know, turns out actually they've got right-sided infective endocarditis and related to that, they have a infective pulmonary embolism because it's, you know, you can think about the anatomy from going from your uh, femoral vein to your inferior vena cava to the right side of your heart, second the valves and then straight to your lungs. Let's talk about diagnostics, Callum. What are you going to, how are you going to diagnose this? Well, I think the key thing is blood cultures. Yeah, I'd agree. Not um, just because we're both infectious disease doctors. Yeah, they, I think if you asked a cardiologist, you would get the same answer too. And part of this is diagnosis of the infective endocarditis, but part of this is also the whole management of the patient because you, you could potentially say, let's do an echocardiogram. Oh, they've got a vegetation on their heart valve or some antibiotics. But because there's this quite a large range of antibiotics, and also because the duration of therapy is long and the risk of complications are high, you really want to make sure you, you grow the microorganism, you get the sensitivity results, you know you're on the right treatment. And the treatment is quite complicated, which is why we're separating it into another episode in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, it depends on how sensitive things are to, to penicillins. And uh, it gets yeah. quite complicated. And, and what antimicrobials you trust as well, which differs from guideline to guideline. Yeah, it's, it is a difficult thing to treat. So that, that the blood cultures um, are the, the, the key. Um, and it's not just so, um, you know, it was on call today and you're getting cold and you say, someone for me and said, that, oh, they, you know, they, they had negative blood cultures. And you look at the results, and it's like one set of blood cultures after starting antibiotics. And I think we talked about this in the bacteremia episode. So that's not good enough uh, to say that someone's not bacteremic. You you need, and with something as important as infective endocarditis, what we're looking for is a minimum of three sets. But I, ideally, you know, getting up to six sets, if you're not getting them positive, you know, that's 12 bottles of, of blood, 20 mils. It's quite a significant amount of blood. But when you're getting that many blood cultures, your sensitivity is is very good for a culturable organism, which is one of the yeah. key things. Blood cultures will never find organisms that are not culturable. So when you're getting more than yeah. six sets, there's, there's probably not much added value after that. No, probably probably not. Uh, we've, we've talked before about that um, case. It ended up being a mold uh, endocarditis, and they had something in the order of 21, 23 sets, something like that of blood cultures taken. So, um, you know, 40 mils of blood each time. It's quite considerable load. And we never grew the organism. We cultured it from excised valve tissue. Um, So there are some that you just won't culture, but most of them you will. And particularly if you, 
you know, you ask them to do a kind of a seven day culture, you know, that that's what you would do if you were, um, you know, worried about the Hasek organisms. Um, you, you, with six sets, again, your, your yield is quite high. But what the guidelines say is that, so for patients with a chronic or a subacute, so not particularly unwell uh, presentation, you should take three sets of optimally filled blood cultures. And we've talked about how to optimally fill them before. From peripheral sites with more than or equal to six hours between them prior to commencing antimicrobial therapy. So in order to do that, you will need 12 hours of the patient not being on antibiotics. So you take you know, one at time zero, one at time six hours, one at time 12 hours, and then you start them on whatever you want to start them on. Despite uh, a dogma that uh, is difficult to shake, uh, the site doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be separate sites. They, they stayed as such in the, in the VSAC guidance and in every guidance that I've um, ever read. It's the time that matters because you're trying to identify a constant bacteremia. So, well, so you're saying that bacteria don't have a preference between the left and right arm? No, they don't. Oh. What, do you, what do you think about this? You've got a patient who's got you know, endocarditis or valvular vegetation on, on echocardiography, and you're going to tell the clinical team, hold off for 12 hours and get all these cultures and then start it. What do you think? How do you think the team are going to feel about that? I think it depends on the context. I think if the patient's well, and if it's subacute or chronic, they've usually been sitting in the community with this for weeks to months. So mm. actually, what is an extra 12 hours? So I think it's I think it's generally well accepted if you're in the context of someone who is truly subacute chronic and there's no indication to start quicker. Yeah, so I, I don't think that that's, that's not my experience, certainly. My, my experience is that the clinical team see somebody who's febrile, and because we have been hammering into everybody that if they've got fever, you need to think sepsis and you need to do sepsis six and you need to start antibiotics as soon as possible. Because if you do, you know, you delay it by more than an hour and their, you know, their mortality has gone up by what, 6%, I think is the number. We've told people that throughout medical school and throughout all the foundation. And so when they find somebody who's got fevers and uh, echocardiogram evidence that they've got endocarditis, they know that that is a bacterial illness, that they are probably bacteremic, and that that will trigger in them a desire to start antimicrobials as soon as possible. Yep. And I've found it really hard to wind back on that hmm. and say just because the patient's feral doesn't mean that they're septic or they have septic shock or anything like that. And, you know, again, in my experience, all it takes is their blood pressure to go very slightly saggy for one reading, and then boom, the antimicrobials go in. And your chance of harvesting anything drops to, you know, essentially nil from about maybe one hour after the antibiotics go in. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I think that's why it's good for these patients to be quickly taken over by people that are experienced with managing, you know, diagnosing and, and managing infective endocarditis, usually taken over by the cardiology team or sometimes by the infectious diseases teams, because you have that level of comfort with people having a fever and, and seemingly not doing anything about it. But I guess you just have to frame it as this is the right thing for the patient, because although it might seem right now that an hour is a delay, but this is going to be six weeks or potentially more of treatment. So we have to get yeah. this right for this patient. I guess, but I mean, my, my argument would be, and BSAC partially agree that I think it's more important to actually get the bug 
than demonstrate the persistent uh, bacteremia. And mm. so BSAC, as, as part of that, because surviving sepsis was around in 2012, you know, when they were writing this, uh, this guideline. So BSAC have said, if the patient is shocked to take two sets of blood cultures within an hour and then start antibiotics. So they're, they're kind of fudging their, their prior recommendation there a little bit so that you can have two sets reasonably separated in time. Well, I mean, if you've got a, pers- if you've got a persistent bacteremia, it's going to be persistent if it's at, you know, you take one set and then another set five minutes later, or if it's 59 minutes later. What you're trying to prove is that the thing that you grow is not skin contamination. And you can make an argument about, you know, if you're puncturing the skin twice, you've doubled your chances of, uh, of skin contamination. But I think that, and the, this is not in a guideline, I'm kind of going off the reservation here, but I think if you've got a persistent bacteremia and you jab the patient once and you take off, say, two cents at that same time. So, you know, one needle goes in, but four blood culture bottles come off and you identify that bug in all four bottles. I think you've got a reasonable chance of having cultured the right thing. And if you then want to wait half an hour and take a third set, uh, just to, you know, double uh, to make sure that you've got three sets and you've had two entry points, I think that's fine. But I think that... um, it's more important to get the organism by taking a ton of blood up front rather than kind of waiting. Cause it, it, uh, all it takes is a twitchy F1 at any point within that, that hour, uh, if the patient's shown to start the antibiotics then, and then your chances of having, uh, of growing anything, you know, go down to essentially nil. What do you think of that? I think if the patient is unwell, it makes complete sense. And if they're not unwell, then waiting because you might just have missed the, the time period that you were in. Perhaps there wasn't much shedding going on from the infective endocarditis. There wasn't, you might've just got the right, wrong uh, time period, um, especially these like less virulent subacute, you know, you might've just missed it. All, all the more reason to take more blood as far as I'm concerned. I, in my head, I would say they're unwell. You take lots of blood cultures immediately, then start antibiotics empirically. Makes sense. Mm. If they're not unwell, if it's subacute, if it's chronic, you've got time, then you are the ideal way to do it is going to be spacing them out and taking them over time yeah. as long as you can yeah. buy into that and or put them on a ward where the, the team are used to managing it and used to managing that risk because it is a risk mm. waiting. Uh, but you have to balance it up with the benefit, which is if you can get the right organism, then you can get the definitive treatment and um, mm. potentially give them the best management. Um, and what about if the patient's already, if you come in a bit like, so this happens quite a lot, people come into hospital, they have a fever, people say, oh, they've got fever. Um, they may or may not be sepsis, um, but they get labeled as having a sepsis or an infection of unknown origin, um, not a pyrexia of unknown origin, which is a defined separate entity. And so they get started on antibiotics empirically. And then later down the line, it becomes clear that they actually had infective endocarditis, but potentially haven't had the proper workup what did you do then yeah so you 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 don't have a blood culture confirming the organism you don't have a microbiological diagnosis well then you've got two options i guess one is that you just consign the patient to empirical antibiotics for you know probably six weeks um and then the other is that you try and get the bug and you've got a problem here 
you can stop the antibiotics on you know day of whatever, but there will be a considerable post antibiotic effect, uh, particularly if you're using beta lactams and aminoglycosides, uh, both of which have a post antibiotic effect that's quite prolonged. And uh, if you assuming that you you gave antimicrobials that the organism was sensitive to, you'll have knocked down the population quite a lot. So you'll uh, not have many bugs to work with, and it will take them a while to kind of start dividing and, and uh, multiplying again after the antimicrobial stopped. So what BSAC have uh, recommended, and I'm pretty sure this is in the more recent guidance as well, is that if they're stable and you suspect endocarditis, so you've seen a vegetation, but you don't have a microbiology, you can consider, you don't have to, but you can consider stopping the antibiotics and then waiting about seven days minimum, seven to 10 days, they say in the guidance, and then take three blood cultures separated in time, but not necessarily location at that point. Um, okay. Yeah. So I think we've talked about the blood cultures aspect. What about uh, imaging? So echocardiography. So okay. um, there's two main forms of echocardiography, transferatic echocardiography and transesophageal, uh, TOE or T-E-E, if you miss out the O at the beginning of the esophagus. You know, a transphoracic echo, you put the ultrasound scan on the chest of a bit of um, ultrasound gel, and you can see uh, the heart. It is better for some parts of the heart than others. It doesn't give you brilliant views of the valves because they're sitting further back. But if the patient is um, of a, you know, a low, low BMI, they're, they're not beasts, and are compliant with the examination, and you can get reasonable views, mm. um, and it's very, it's fairly easy to access. So you can get one in a couple of days at our local center. Now that might pick up your infective endocarditis, but the problem is it's not that sensitive. If you have a negative TTE and you've got a high index of suspicion for infective endocarditis, and then you would move on to a transesophageal echo, um, which requires a sort of endoscope with an ultrasound camera that goes down your esophagus, which is much gets much closer to your heart, and you can see much better views of the valves, and it is the gold standard investigation. It really comes down to what you think your pre-test probability is, because if you have got a patient of fever and you're like, oh, maybe it's infective endocarditis, but you actually don't think it's very likely, you've got a low pre-test probability, and you do a transphrastic echo, which has a fairly, you know, I don't know, do you know what the actual sensitivity is for infective endocarditis? I think it's something like 75%. Okay, um, so it's not terrible. It's okay, but it's not bad. And the negative predict value is about 72. Yeah. 72, yeah. So you've got low pre-test probability and then you do that test and it's negative. You probably, that's that's the end of it. Uh, but if you have a high pre-test probability, so you think there's a very high likelihood that the patient's going to have infective endocarditis and you have a negative TTE, that's not going to cut it. You, you're going to need to do that TOE because if there's a high pre-test probability, having a low sensitivity test with a you know fairly poor negative predictive value isn't, is you're, you're post-test probability from a transphoracic echo will still be quite high. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, we've got a quoted sensitivity here in BSAC of 75% for TTE and 95% for TOE. Yeah. Uh, but like you say, Cal, it's, um, it, it sort of depends on which bit of the heart you're looking at, particularly for right-sided endocarditis. And, you know, I'm, we're thinking about our IVDU patients here who are more likely to get that. Uh, TOE is very useful. 
you're um you're really reliant on a cardiologist here because they're the experts in the views of the heart that are getting and how adequate the scan was and also the risks so a toe you know is not a, a, a risk-free procedure no it's it's technically aerosol generating isn't it which has relevance now well yeah that, that's also true so there was a, there was a period where it was extremely difficult to access them yeah. um and i would say that experiences because it's quite a difficult test to perform and there's risks and so on people are quite reluctant to do it so i i would say my experience is that in clinical practice we probably do less toes than, than we should yeah uh, I, I feel the same but i mean those are the main two diagnostic things to do take a ton of blood uh for culture and get an echo plus or minus a toe if indicated there, there's some small fry stuff so on, on the excised valve if it gets to that you can do culture of the valve uh, as well. Um, they'll macerate uh, a section of it and uh, culture on an agar plate. Uh, or you can send some of it for 16S PCR. What's 16S PCR, Jim? Well, uh, 16S is the ribosomal subunit um, that uh, prokaryotes uh, have. So humans and uh, all other eukaryotes have 18S. And the that's... Uh, ribosome some unit is conserved between different species so you can sequence it uh, or you can you can look for certain markers via pcr and then identify if you've got staph aureus or strep or fungi or uh, what have you well with fungi it would be 18s but you can you can do a pcr uh, on that tissue and then see what you find do you find bacterial uh, rna there indicating that uh, that was the infecting organism It'll allow you to ident it. It won't do any antimicrobial sensitivity testing. You will just have to guess. So that's why it's inferior to, you know, positive blood cultures and uh, an organism culture from the valve itself. But sometimes if you've pickled the patient in antimicrobials before the operation, you won't be able to grow anything. So 16S is all you got. So 16S should pick up all bacterial organisms. And I think you said conserved between species and you meant to say conserved within species. Yeah, sorry. Um, just so people don't get confused. So, you know, mm. say, you know, all staph aureus will have very similar 16S where there's their actual genome will be quite separate. But when you do a 16S, you can pick up anything and including organisms which can be difficult to culture. The, the main downside to this is because you've got this very wide panel and you're looking for lots of things, your sensitivity is lower. So it's quoted as being about 100-fold lower sensitivity than a, than a directed PCR. So say you do a PCR on the tissue for Staphylococcus aureus um, and you do a 16S, you might pick it up on the Staph aureus panel, but not on the 16S. Uh, and the other downside with it is, and with all PCRs, that they're not actually as sensitive as culture. So a blood culture is is very sensitive. If you Just a couple of organisms in there, you, you should be able to grow them up. Whereas PCR, you're going to have a much higher, lower limit of detection. Does that make sense? So the lower order of detection is the lowest number that you can detect. And that will be higher in less sensitive tests like PCR. So basically, you've got culture. You've got PCR, which you could, you could do in blood. We don't do that locally, but um, you could run um, a bacterial you know, PCR and blood to see if you've got any organisms there. And then the other uh, sort of tool in your armamentarium of diagnostics would be serology. So 
particularly if someone's got culture negative infective endocarditis as and they've had um, their adequate workup and their cultures are, you know, you get into 48, 72 hours and you've got no diagnostic test positive, then that's where you should consider uh, serology. So um, you can do serology looking for the, the, the key one is Q fever, which is Coxiella burnetti, which is linked to sort of farm uh, exposure. Also Bartonella. Although good luck um, getting Bartonella serology done these days. Yeah, you um, can't really access it easily in the UK. And then um, another one is uh, we're thinking about is Brasella. Um, so there's different species of Brasella and they're linked to, again, animal exposure, particularly unpasteurized milk or exposure to placenta of um, animals. It's not present in the UK, but if patients have been abroad and had unpasteurized milk products, then that's a risk. Yeah, particularly people returning from uh, the Middle East Middle and East, yeah. uh, Pakistan and the Indian subcontinent. Maybe they've gone back where they're, uh, where they're from is quite rural um, and they've kind of, re- you know, they just go back to uh, drinking unpasteurized milk and, you know, the stuff that they would have done growing up um, will expose them to Brussels and they come back. That That's kind of basically how all the cases of Brussels present these days mm. in the UK. They're yeah, all imported. These like little niche cases like Q fever and Brussels. If we get far enough in the podcast, perhaps we'll be coming back to them one day. Oh, they'll get their own episode. Don't you Deep dive. You'll have a whole series on Brussels, all different types. <laughs> um, let's talk about the modified Duke criteria. What's the modified Duke criteria? So I don't use this very much. <laughs> Callum, the, you you must be the expert, and I got to admit to the to, to loyal listener now, I always have to look it up every every time that I'm thinking about it, and I've actually well, got a. Can I come in and say something there, Jim? Yeah, go on, man. As Albert Einstein said, "Why remember something that you can look up?" So I I would I always look this up as well. There's no point in memorizing it. Oh, that makes me feel better, actually. If the microbiologist half of the podcast uh, does the same as I, yeah, I think I think this, if, if you remember trying to remember stuff, you're inevitably going to make mistakes. Just look it up. Which is why exams are somewhat artificial now. That's what I think. I mean, this is kind of what MD Calc is for. Um, yeah, MD Calc sponsor us. <laughs> so, but then the, the stuff that's really useful for trying to establish the diagnosis is the major and the minor criteria, and the major criteria are. Uh, there's two of them. There's a blood culture, two or more blood cultures positive with a typical organism. So that's all the gram positives that we talked about and the HASEX. Or one positive blood culture for Coxiella bernetii because it's quite difficult to culture. And then the second criteria is endocardial involvement. So either an abscess, a new valve regurgitation, or dehiscence of a metal valve uh, from its site. And then the minor criteria are predisposing heart conditions or a history of intravenous drug use, fever, there's fever again, uh, blood culture is positive, but they don't meet the criteria, the major criteria. So, you know, you've cultured staphoreus, but only in one, uh, or it's an unusual organism like a gram negative, you know, something like that. And also uh, BSAC guidance that we're going from also mentioned 16S here and says that that's a minor criteria too. So that's one, two, three. Uh, four is vascular phenomena and five is immunologic phenomena. So the vascular phenomena are arterial emboli, mycotic aneurysms, that's an aneurysm of the of blood vessels, intracranial hemorrhage, septic PE, a conjunctival bleed, or the Janeway lesions that we mentioned before. So they're 
they're kind of a, a considered to be a septic embolic phenomena, uh, microemboli uh, as well. And then the immunologic phenomena, which are kind of related to the immune system's kind of overreaction to the semicarditis, are glomerulonephritis, Osler's nodes, Roth spots, that's the intraocular, uh, intraretinal hemorrhages that we talked about before, and positive rheumatoid factor, um, which I never check for. I don't know if you do, Callum. No, I'm never done. I find that you usually I've made my mind up <laughs> by the time I get down here. Uh, but rheumatoid factor, it's a, it's an IgM autoantibody that your your body produces. It's kind of positive in about five to ten percent of of humans, and it's an autoantibody against the FC component of IgG. So it's a kind of a mopping up uh, autoantibody. It's it's got a normal role. Uh, but it's overproduced during stress and particularly in certain infections. And endoc- infective endocarditis is, is one of those uh, infections. So it it's, can be useful as a diagnostic tool. But then it's, you know, quite a high false positive because it's fairly, you know, if I have 10% of people have it normally, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously it's more associated with autoimmune disease, you know, particularly rheumatoid uh, arthritis, but others as well. And, and some of those uh, cause aseptic endocarditis. Uh, so there's a bit of possibility for misinterpretation there. But then those are all the major and minor criteria. Okay, so how do you interpret these major and minor criteria? Yeah, so I've, I've chin-wagged about all of that, but that's just all the things to you know take off. So the, the way that you diagnose definite in, endocarditis, you've made the diagnosis if you get any of the pathological criteria, but I think that would have been obvious, should have been obvious, two majors, one major and three minor, or five minor. And it's possible if you have three minor or one major and one minor criteria, at least. So if you've got one major and two minor, you've still got possible, but you don't have definite, if you know what I mean. So I have difficulty remembering this. And so what I what I did was I kind of assigned a points value to the major and the minor criteria. Uh, so the way I interpreted it is this. You need the major criteria have 2.5 points. Uh, the minor criteria have one point. And the pathological criteria, they've got, they've got six points. And you need more than five points to have endocarditis. So you want to say greater than or equal to five points to get the diagnosis? Yeah, greater than or equal to five. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so if you've got any of the pathological criteria, you've, you've been diagnosed with uh, endocarditis, two major, that's five, you made the diagnosis, one major and three minor, that's uh, 5.5, and then five minor, that's five, you've made the diagnosis uh, again. That just kind of works out easier in my head to kind of think about it. I'm sort of adding it up as I go. Um, and it also means that from those numbers, I can sort of work back and figure out how many minors I need in combination with one major in order to make the diagnosis. But I, I never remember really what the minor and the major criteria are. I always um, look them up. Cal, you said that you use them in the in the duty room quite a lot to, I think it's to kind of exclude endocarditis more than more than include it or rule it out. I I use it as a tool. To, to, to reference to what people should be looking for. So generally when, when someone's not seen much infective endocarditis and 
they're phoning you and saying, we're worried about this patient having infective endocarditis. And I say, okay, let's look through the Jukes criteria. And I just talk through it talk point by point. And not only does it say like, it, it gives us a good framework to say, okay, this is what you're missing, or this is what you need to go examine for. Uh, but it mm. also kind of helps frame the discussion, both in my mind and there, and we're on the same page. Because when you're in person, it's a bit easier. And if you're reviewing the patient, but a lot of the time that you know if, if you're not got time to go and see them you're doing over the phone with somebody who might not be experienced so it's just good to have that framework to work through well i mean i guess a lot of the time cal when you're particularly when you're doing microbiology you're not on the same site as the patient so yeah. even if you had all the time in the world you wouldn't be able to go and see them you can't leave the hospital just go after your shift <laughs> i've been tempted to do that sometimes it would be easier yeah, yeah, but yeah. uh yeah so I, I think it's quite useful tool particularly if the team are thinking it's infective endocarditis and then you go through every single point and you're like, do you have this? No. Do you have this? No. And then you get to the end and they've got zero. And you can quite quickly say like, well, I'm quite reassured that the patient, you know, is low risk for having infective endocarditis. I wouldn't say completely rule it out. Probably won't have a TOE at that point. But yeah, I think, and it's quite useful also to say, you know, if people phone up and they say, I've got a patient with infective endocarditis. Unless there's a cardiologist or infection specialist phoning me and there's like, or I can see that that diagnosis has been reached. If that's been a label applied, and I think this comes back to a lot of, in terms of what we would call early closure in diagnosis. So when you falsely think that you've reached a form diagnosis and you stop generating differentials. So if you early closure on this patient and say, this is infective endocarditis, potentially because they've got an abnormal echo or they've got some of these criteria, then you go through it and you say, actually, Patient's only got one major and one minor, three minor or whatnot. This is possible infective endocarditis. And that is a distinct label. So then in the notes, it gets written possible infective endocarditis. And then it means that people aren't doing that early closure. Mm. Uh, so I think that's quite a useful tool. My main criticism of it would be that there, I think there's a bit of clinical judgment that is applied to it. And that's, you know, I think with any tool, you have to see the patient. So you, you might have someone who they, they only have fever and they've got, you know, a mycotic aneurysm and you haven't got a toe yet but you know even though they're they're not sitting with that many criteria you're, you're thinking that's very high risk because you're not looking at this in a in a vacuum you're looking at this with the rest of the differentials or, yeah. or there might be someone who's got loads of these criteria and actually is maybe pushing into definitive definite infective endocarditis but actually you know well actually they've got these problems because they've got um granulomatous polyangitis yeah, you know, so you need to use your criteria along with a differential diagnosis. Well, I mean, you could easily imagine an IV, uh, an IV drug user hitting several of these minor criteria. So injecting drug use is in itself one of the features. You know, fever, vascular phenomena, uh, microbiological evidence. Like uh, if somebody has a septic, you know, uh, sorry, an infected DVT, they could easily hit four out of five. And, you know, say, say they happen to be the one in 10 that have a positive rheumatoid factor, boom, you're done, immunological phenomena. You've diagnosed endocarditis. Yeah, definitive. It doesn't have endocarditis. Yeah. And, I mean, in the guidance, it says, it says the Duke criteria can be used to assist the diagnosis of IE, but are not a substitute for clinical judgment. Yeah. I think that they're right to put that in. You know, the Duke criteria are good to work with. I think you've convinced me over the course of this podcast that uh, I think they're... I think they're good now. I've come into your camp now. Great. Well, we can stop. We've taught James. That's (laughs) the end of the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. We're not recording any more episodes. But you know what I mean? Like the, (laughs) um, 
the uh, the clinical judgment has to trump a bun- a checklist. You know, yeah. it can be it's a real good checklist, but it's still just a checklist. Yeah. And we don't don't diagnose stuff by checklist. Checklists and um, these sort of uh, prompts are really helpful because clinicians in this day and age are constantly subjected to cognitive overload. So you're bombarded with different information and things that you have to do, guidelines, checklists, etc. Yeah. And so um, this is a really helpful adjunct to making decisions safely and supporting you in doing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, very often you'll have been, you know, contacted because they're persistently febrile. And they'll be then worrying about endocarditis because they know that that causes persistent fever. And then they've made the jump um, uh, without kind of finalizing yeah. the uh, I guess the that's also tied into shift pattern working, multiple handover periods. So when people read the notes and they get back through it, they don't, they don't have time to do that critical analysis of other people's decisions. So if you see oh, yeah. endocarditis, it, it trans- and lots of things get lost in translation. So. Well, that I mean, that can go from that can go from being the differential to possible endocarditis to probable endocarditis to endocarditis. It just gets dropped. So that's us briefly gone through uh, the definition of infective endocarditis, some of the typical causative organisms, and we've talked about symptoms, signs, and risk factors, how you diagnose this uh, condition and talked about the modified Duke criterias and made our own little modification to it, potentially, or shamelessly stolen someone else's idea. Sorry. Uh, in case the loyal listener is wondering what's, uh, how you actually go about treating endocarditis, either empirically or once you've cultured the organism, we're going to talk about that next week and maybe talk about uh, some of the more niche uh, causes of endocarditis as well, in particular fungal uh, endocarditis so yeah well we'll talk about that next week so i like your scoring system james i think that's good i don't know is a scoring system got a name modified modified jukes criteria or mccray's modified jukes modified criteria i like that if you find a, a flaw in this beautiful new way of applying it or if it's been published widely and it's just something we've not heard about you can email us at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com to tell us that we have in fact been idiots well, indeed, along with any other questions, comments, or suggestions, uh, please email us at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I've been Callum. See you then.